The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agopymatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating relationships while answering your questions. This week, though, is going to be a little bit different. You see, last week, I was chosen to moderate Dare to Date, the COVID vaccine and dating safety webinar hosted by the Meet Me group. I got to speak to the Safer Dating Advisory Board made up of Dr. Tali Elfasi, Dr. Anu Hazra, and Dr. Melissa Sharp to talk about dating in a post-vaccine world. And in just a moment, you're going to get an opportunity to hear that webinar in case you missed it. We received so many questions, and I can tell that, at least to my listeners, that dating safely is just so important. And as you'll soon hear, based on the questions that you sent, we have amazing conversations based on dating safely. I am, again, thankful for the Meet Me group for hosting such an amazing event, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you have any questions, you can always go to askamatchmaker.com and hopefully we can answer those questions in an upcoming episode. Enjoy. I want to welcome you to Dare to Date, the COVID vaccine and dating safety. The Meet Group's Safer Dating Advisory Board formed in July 2020 is comprised of top epidemiologists and health experts including Dr. Anu Hazra, an internal medicine and infectious diseases physician certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine, Dr. Tali Alfasi, an epidemiologist and research assistant professor of epidemiology in the Department of Medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and Dr. Melissa Sharp, an epidemiologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. The Safer Dating Advisory Board provides consultation on dating products, including the launch of the in-app COVID dating preference feature, safer dating guidance, including dating tips offered to members of the Meet Group's dating apps, and has helped shape the Meet Group's response to the pandemic caused by the novel coronavirus. As a leader in dating safety, the Meet Group continues to strive to set the industry standard, leveraging the most innovative technologies to make its dating applications a place where millions can safely connect, meet, and date. We are also joined by the Meet Group's Senior Vice President of Marketing and co-founder, Catherine Connolly. We are here to discuss the importance of COVID-19 vaccine, dating in person, and best practices to reduce the risk of transmission. The topic we're discussing today is really important to me. 
as I imagine it is important to you. Last summer, I had one client request to only be set up with people who had already passed COVID-19. Naturally, in a post-vaccine world, I imagine many of my clients will ask to only be set up with those that have been vaccinated, but there's so much we don't know, and I'm so happy to have the leadership of the Meet Meet group and the Safer Dating Dating Advisory Board to guide us to safer dating. And I also just want to thank right now the guests for dedicating their time today to answer your questions. I welcome you to use the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. There you can ask questions. And I, and I just, uh, I just, again, like I said, I want to thank our guests today. You're all really smart and, uh, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's truly a public service uh, from not only figurative, but literal perspective, what we're doing today. So to kick it off, I do want to ask um, Catherine. Uh, what has, you know, as a co-founder of a dating site and at multiple sites, what have you seen the past year with regards to dating and COVID? Yes. Thank you, Maria. So this year has been so incredibly hard on so many people. I think that, you know, really goes without saying, um, you know, other, you know, many people have lost loved ones, but on top of that, um, even those, um, being in isolation is being, is, is particularly difficult. And so this is something that we've seen, you know, as, as uh, globally, you know, this is the largest um, shared stressor, um, most universal shared stressor in years. And uh, it, it definitely takes a toll on, uh, on, on our dating community. And what we've seen on our, on our apps, um, Meet Me, Scout, Tagged, and Growler, really is, is the community come together. Um, so we have, uh, a very so we launched video on, on all of our apps um, at, at starting actually as, as early as, uh, as as 2017. So we've already had kind of this video community building and on Growler. We made sure to fast track it um, at, at basically as soon as it became clear that we were entering lockdowns. And so we made sure that we had video for all of our members. And now we're actually seeing over two, nearly 250,000 dating games being played per day, uh, which is double what it was pre-pandemic. And so really we're seeing just, you know, a, a, you know, a lot of dating happening, happening virtually, which is fantastic because, you know, it's, it's a safe way, a safer way to date in the sense that you can, you know, kind of test out who you're meeting before meeting in person to, to make sure that you have chemistry to make sure that they're not, um, you know, you can talk about, you know, how, what protocols to follow and, 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 um, and, and make sure, you know, find out about their households and what precautions that they've been taking. So a lot of that has been very important to, you know, in dating safer. Uh, but in general, we've just seen such a huge, um, community, the community really grow together. Um, a lot of streamers specifically have, have commented that, um, you know, it's, it's been good for their mental health just to be able to continue to connect with people on the apps. And, um, and, and we've also seen some interesting trends kind of start up around, you know, who they're dating. So for instance, we see that about 40% of members, uh, report that they're more open to a long distance relationship now than they were pre-pandemic, uh, which, which makes sense. There's a lot of people that are a bit more transient. Some people left the cities and they're now, um, potentially, you know, living with, with family members or just living in, in different areas than they had been before. Um, and, and, you know, before they maybe returned to where they had lived or just considering 
you know, different life, uh, in making different lifestyle changes from where, where they had been. And so we're seeing, you know, more long distance relationships and people are more open to long distance relationships. We're also seeing, um, you know, generally less people meeting in person, um, overall. Uh, but with that said, we've, we've been tracking over the course of the, of the, of the year, um, how willing people are to, um, to, to meet someone, not just on all our, all our apps, but doing a panel, um, some panel surveys and seeing daters across the U S um, what they're willing to do in, in terms of, um, in terms of meeting people. And, and really at the very beginning of the pandemic last year, you, we saw the percentage of people willing to meet new people, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, meet a new person, um, in person, you know, it was declining until about the summer where it actually started going back to pre-pandemic levels. And that's where we've, we've largely remained. And so, you know, a lot of the reason that, you know, people do still are still going out to date, um, you know, 71% of daters prefer their, their dates to wear a mask, uh, which is fantastic. And so we, we've really been seeing, um, lots of promising, um, you know, signs of people, you know, taking the proper precautions, but still, you know, still looking to find love still looking to find that connection. Um, and, and that, that connection sense of community is really, um, has, has been helping people in, in, in this very difficult time when we've seen, you know, time with time spent on video within our apps, uh, increase over 30%. So over wow. a billion minutes per month are, are spent in video. Wow. Yeah. Well, since the safer dating advisory board was created, Three vaccines have been approved by the FDA in the United States of America. There is a fourth that was just put in. So the three that were approved were Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. And I believe AstraZeneca just put in for FDA approval. Um, I do want to ask our fellow epidemiologists, um, you know, when it comes to the available vaccines, can you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, what are they? How good are they? Is there a way to judge what we're receiving, what kind of standards does the FDA have in place for our own safety? I think I can, I can try to speak a little bit about um, sort of where we are right now in terms of vaccination. Um, so worldwide, we're over 450 million doses that have been given. So this is across all of the different um, vaccines that are currently available. So, but in the U.S., I mean, there's more than to an, about two and a half million um, that are being given out every day. Um, I believe the U.S. hit the mark over 100 million so far, um, and you know that's only since December, um, and that's only those three vaccines that you mentioned. Um, the way that normal um, drug development clinical trials work has been followed throughout the entire process. You know things were obviously accelerated. We had more money. We had more investment. Um, but no sort of corners were cut on things. And I think, you know, if you look at the, the numbers in terms of, of efficacy of these, these vaccines, they're, they're quite good in terms of um, side effects. You know, it's, it's very minimal um, at the, you know, immediately afterwards, you know, a fever, chills, soreness, and things like that. But, you know, we're doing the normal process of monitoring things and sort of things are going according to plan in terms of these are the structures that are set up that normally monitor how drugs are developed, how vaccines are developed, and they are working well, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so in the United States, like you mentioned, Maria, we have uh, three vaccines that are currently approved under emergency use authorization by the FDA, mm-hmm. Pfizer, Moderna, and, uh, uh, and uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. All three vaccines um, uh, work in similar fashions and sort of bringing the instructions um, to ourselves to create uh, the protein called the spike protein. That's mm-hmm. on the virus. That's what gives the virus like the crown nature, why it's called a coronavirus. Um, and so your body is given the instructions. I think of it as someone, something is delivering IKEA instructions to your cells and your cells have the ability to, to manufacture that protein um, that they end up um, uh, 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 pushing out of the cell. And then your immune system recognizes and develops immune response to. So all three vaccines uh, work by having your body create spike proteins that then it reacts to. Just the delivery method of how that instruction enters the cell is a mm-hmm. Between Pfizer and Moderna, which uses mRNA technology, which has been around for the past 15, 20 years, and uh, um, uh, Johnson and Johnson, as well as AstraZeneca, uh, which you mentioned, um, uses an adenovirus vector using a sort of benign virus vector to bring those instructions into the cell to create uh, that that protein. In in both methodologies, the instructions disappear um, because they're very unstable on their own. uh, And so Mm lingering um, in the cells afterwards. Um, But the whole point of this is to have your body create its own immune response that it can then recognize uh, uh, the novel coronavirus when um, someone is potentially exposed. I would also add that these are all highly efficacious vaccines. So with Moderna and uh, Pfizer, you have efficacy rates well in the mid 90 percentiles, which is like unheard of for vaccines. Um, And then the Johnson and Johnson, I believe, is in the mid 70s. Um, But again, you know, people often look at these efficacy rates and then compare I want one vaccine over the other. My message would be take any vaccine you can get, even with a slightly lower efficacy rate. You can't necessarily compare different vaccines because they were tested in different populations under potential different scenarios in terms of which variants were common at the time. Um, The other thing I will say about the different efficacy rates is that across the board with all of these vaccinations, we have, you know, if not 100% efficacy in terms of, you know, um, extreme COVID events or, you know, severe COVID outcomes. So, you know, you could have potentially a vaccine and then, you know, a month later, you can come down with very mild or asymptomatic um, COVID-like illness or COVID. Um, but again, these are highly efficacious vaccines and you should, I would encourage people to jump at the opportunity to get vaccinated by any of them. Yeah, I think it's important to underscore that not a single person in any of the vaccine arms died of COVID. So that's, again, all the vaccines currently across the world, that includes like Novavax, Sinovax, like all these other international vaccines, not a single death occurred in any of the vaccine arms due to COVID-19. So while we would love to see high numbers of efficacy, you know, in terms of all COVID disease, the point of these vaccines is really to prevent severe COVID, like Dr. Alfasi said, and death. And that's the one way that that's, that's our harm reduction technique is to right. sort of reduce that risk the most. And all vaccines, specifically all the vaccines currently available in the United States, are 100% effective in in that itself. So I am not only a matchmaker, I'm a matchmaker who's married to a public health scientist who who went from working at Harvard School of Public Health to now pharmaceutical companies. So I get all this crazy information. And I also get my fair share of memes that are sometimes sent my way, I don't know, as a way against vaccines. I don't know why, consider your audience, but anyway. 
And what do you say to someone who says, oh, this vaccine was made too quickly? I would say personally, and I have said this to people, is that the amount of money that went into vaccine development for COVID was unheard of. So typically in a vaccine process, we would have one company working on one vaccine, doing the research and development for one. If that fails, then we start the process over with another company, you know, and with, with COVID, what we had was a massive investment and we had, you know, something like more than 15 vaccines being developed at once. Um, The other thing I would say is that for a lot of the, you know, the, the mRNA technology, as soon as the virus was sequenced, which happened very early on, you could essentially create the code that uh, comprises the vaccine. So, so instead of off of the yes, 2002 SARS, exactly picking back of existing technology. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, typically what occurs with vaccines is you have to test it in a population. And in order to test whether a vaccine is efficacious or not, you need enough people to be exposed to the virus so that you could detect differences between the two groups, the group that receives the vaccine and the group that does not. Because COVID was ubiquitous, we didn't have to wait a long time before we had cases developed because it was just everywhere. So that also sped up the process. So there were a number of things that really sped up this timeline. And I can say, you know, reviewing the papers and the studies, I don't see anywhere where safety was compromised. To piggyback off what you just um, said, Dr. Alfasi, um, it makes me think about single parents that are using the apps right now. I think especially single parents have full custody. They haven't caught a break this past year, right? They're using meet me or maybe they're using, um, you know, other apps and they can't really date because if you have full custody of young children, who's coming to take care of your children if you're going to go on a date. So now I wonder, you know, I think when it comes to vaccinating just single people, I also think about vaccinating our own children. Has anyone here um, heard of like what tests are happening for the younger population, which could make single parents using the apps feel a little safer to go out later on? So the Moderna vaccine currently is um, EUA approved for ages 16 and above. The Pfizer is only 18 and above. And I believe Johnson Johnson is only 18 and above as well. Um, they're all three are enrolling uh, folks in both teenage trials. So folks uh, above the age of 12 and above, as well as um, uh, younger trials. So looking more in the ages of five to seven and above. Uh, so in general, that will take time to come out to, to, to know the safety and efficacy in, in children. Uh, but the uh, most experts are, are thinking we'll have data from uh, in, in folks younger than the age of 16, probably by the end of this year and early 2022, uh, before they would potentially be expanded in terms of the EUA access for, for any of the vaccines itself. I think it's important to know that our children can also rely on herd immunity. Uh, and so really, when we talk about, you know, folks that can't get the vaccine for any reason, we think about any vaccine preventable illness, um, we want to reach a certain point where the majority of folks in the community have been become immunized against a, uh, against a pathogen. And by doing that, that can protect folks that may not be able to get the vaccine like young children. Um, and so we can still reach a point where it would be safe for a single parent to date and, and, and whatnot, or have someone watch their kids if we get to a point where the majority of the population is immune to, to this pathogen. 
Would you, Dr. Hazar, would you recommend if you are a parent, let's say this summer with young children to, and you're vaccinated to only date other vaccinated people? Yeah. Or people I, who have passed COVID-19. I don't know how antibodies work so much with this novel coronavirus if it expires after a year, but. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I, I think this really goes back to when we think about um, harm reduction and risk reduction. I think there'll be risk no matter what we do. You know, there's risk in anything we do in general. And just like we think about COVID-19, anything you do will will confer some level of risk. And it's mm-hmm. talking what steps can you take to reduce that risk to your greatest ability. And so we know ways that we already do that by, you know, hanging out more outdoors and indoors, using masks, social distancing, et cetera. And vaccinations are a really potent way to exercise harm reduction. And so if we start to think about Sarah sorting or sorting by vaccination status, yeah, that's another way that you can reduce your potential risk of of uh, of, uh, of COVID-19. And that includes people who potentially could have natural immunity as well. But again, we are have much more reliable data on the effect of immunity and the, and the duration of immunity in these vaccine trials than on natural immunity alone. I would also, you know, piggyback off of that comment and say that, you know, now the discussion has really moved towards vaccines and, you know, what do we do if one person is vaccinated and one person is not? Um, But there's also the issue of testing. And at this point, we have a much better testing infrastructure than we had at the beginning of the pandemic. So if someone is concerned about I've been vaccinated, my potential date has not, you know, testing is absolutely still available. And I don't think it's unreasonable for, you know, a, a potential partner to ask, you know, a potential date, would you mind getting tested? A lot of these testing sites are free. Um, you can get results rapidly. So that's still absolutely an option available in the event that there is um, discomfort with one person being vaccinated and the other not. Dr. Alfasi, isn't it fascinating? I mean, I, I say this to all the epidemiologists today on the panel, um, how as daters, we're, because we're forced to talk about our bubbles and our boundaries, do you think we'll also, and I know this doesn't do with vaccines, but you are epidemiologists, if we're able to start having these boundary conversations and like what we're comfortable with, I want to believe that we'll also see a drop in STDs or, um, you know, or having an increase in more consent sexual behavior, because if we're getting comfortable talking about our boundaries before we're even meeting someone, imagine telling someone, Hey, I need you to get tested before our first date. Now it could be easier to say, Hey, I need you to get tested before we have sex. There has to be some spillover effect here. Yeah, I do think that communication has really completely changed. I mean, you know, people are more open and willing to, you know, to to talk to their date before they meet them in person, to talk about things that they never would have talked before about, and to, you know, do activities that maybe they weren't thinking about before, you know before you would go to a bar and have a drink and maybe now you're going to a park and going for coffee. I was talking to someone the other day and they went and played table tennis in a park. And, you know, if you propose that before, then you might've gotten some pushback. And I think now that, you know, people's expectations and communications have really changed. And I think people have just, they, you know, they've, they've really changed how they they're approaching dating. And I hope that, you know, people, they've had the time to reflect on certain things and maybe they are, you know, they know what they want. They are more direct with things. So I, I would, would change. I would also add now this is getting into more behavioral aspects, less epidemiology, but um, 
I would add that if you get pushback from someone, you know, after you request something like, do you mind getting tested? That that's probably an indication of a larger personality trait that you might want to know anyway, you know? So, so these sorts of asks and questions, especially pertaining to health, can really give us signals as to, you know, other aspects of a person that might interest potential daters. daters. Dr. Sharp. No, I think that applies for both both testing and vaccination of, you know, someone's decision to do these things. It's it's based on a lot of different factors and your values come into play sometimes. And so there there are there is a deeper layer there that's very behavioral to these these health decisions. Yeah, I mean I, I hope folks feel empowered to ask their dates, you know, about their vaccine status or feel empowered to, you know, say, hey, I feel comfortable only being outdoors right now, even though we're both vaccinated. I think those types of conversations are really important to have and definitely can translate to more intimate conversations about what they're comfortable with, uh, with either sex or, or, or other forms of intimacy. I hope this translates to, to ways people are better able to communicate about sex, about their sexual preferences, about what they, what they want uh, intimacy-wise. Uh, and I hope that we can prevent sort of other sort of, um, you know, health outcomes we want to avoid like STIs, but also intimate partner violence and other things that are, that all arise from poor communication from the start with partners. One of the words that has gotten on my nerves is normal. I hate using that word normal because I don't think there is going to be a normal and I hate to say new normal. Oh, what a cliche. So instead, I like to say stuff like a post-vaccine world. What does a post-vaccine world look like a year from now in terms of dating? I mean, I would like to think that I've taken sort of the optimistic, positive spin on things, that there's been a lot of growth and self-reflection for a lot of people. Um, (laughs) So I think in terms of consideration for other people, you know, I think we've seen from the flu rates that, you know, the flu doesn't exist anymore because people are doing precautions that we should have been doing all along. We should have been wearing masks. It was common in, in, you know, in Asian communities to wear masks when you're sick. It's just considerate to your fellow human being. And so I really hope that certain things like that, like wearing a mask in public when you're not feeling great, I hope that that stuff stays around. So I wouldn't want to go back to the old normal or whatever. And I also think that communication has has advanced you know people are more open to different kinds of engagement and i think that that was great in terms of you know work-life balance in terms of dating i think there's a lot of opportunities and growth that we can take away from this and to just sort of go back to how things were i think that you know it, it ignores the fact that we have really come a long way yeah, I mean, I feel like as we are constantly changing and evolving, so even our, our 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 notion of normal constantly changes, even without this pandemic. And this pandemic maybe accelerates certain changes or, or whatnot. I mean, I, I really hope for a year from now, if someone wants to go for a date at a bar, they can totally do that. And that's not going to be cumbersome or difficult for them to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also agree with Dr. Sharp. I think certain behaviors, like potentially in the dead of winter, when you're going to the grocery store, I may see more masks next year or the years to come. Um, when people are just a bit more concerned about in public places of other sort of uh, viral infections or respiratory viruses that can happen. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. That's just a change in behavior. I mean, uh, 
pre-HIV epidemic, the use of condoms for just sex and not prevention for pregnancy was unheard of. And then there was a huge behavioral shift in using condoms for, for pleasure as well, and not just to prevent pregnancy, but to prevent other STIs as well. And so I think thinking about, you know, similar ways that we talk about sort of harm reduction in the sense of of COVID-19, certain things will stick and it's not, you know, a terrible thing that our normal is shifting and evolving because that's going to happen regardless. I, I am, you know, a bit of an optimist on this. I think dating will go back to sort of pre-pandemic norms, um, but maybe aspects- That's you being that, an optimist. That's <laughs> that to me, what you just said well, is- no, it's, <laughs> no, no. Okay. So realistically speaking, I think things will go back to the way that we've you know, had them for years. Um, if you go back in history to the 1918 flu pandemic, people wore masks. They, they somewhat distanced, you know, it was also that episode in history was a really traumatic event that occurred, um, just like we're facing trauma now. So I think there will be elements of this behavioral shift, like mask wearing that might be more common, maybe less common uh, to shake hands with someone. We might maintain some of this remote um, aspect of, of, of life and, you know, but in terms of our personal relationships, um, I, I, I don't think there is going to be that much that changes. I think one of the things, I think it's now as a professional matchmaker, you know, you, because you just mentioned, you know, 100 years ago, people were not dating strangers who shared the similar religion in a 20 mile radius from their home. They were dating people within their neighborhood or within their community or within their church, synagogue, temple, whatever. And as a result, you already knew their values. You probably had network, you know, you had, you had accountability within the group. So you couldn't ghost. No one's writing about being ghosted. You know, Fitzgerald has not written a book about being ghosted by a man or whatever, right? Or a woman. So Your letter doesn't come back after you send it. Via mail. Well, yeah. yeah, I suppose, you know, but you know what? There was also the Great War. So there's a lot of reasons why someone might not have written back. But I want to get, what I want to get to is that there is dating now and it's such a different animal. And I think what COVID-19 did is that it forced us to stop dating and to start courting. I mean, you can even see it in the Meet Me app. I think it's a great app because it's also not just a dating app where you swipe, swipe, swipe. It's also a source of entertainment. Dating can be really tiresome, especially if you're single. And Well, obviously, if you're dating, you're single. And um, I think because we were all stuck at home, because we had to have conversations, because it took a little longer, you have to get tested, all that stuff. I think courting has come back. And I want... I. I'm hoping that stays. Uh, look, I honestly believe this summer, everyone's going to be having sex with anyone licking eyeballs <laughs> once they're vaccinated. I get it. But I think, you know, the next winter, people are going to be like, you know what, I really would like someone right now for for this lonely night. And I think we are going to see a bit more recording, but that's just me being an, an optimist. Yeah, right. I, think, I think, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so I, I think that, uh, yeah, we have definitely seen a, a raise, rise kind of an, an intentioned in intention dating across the industry where you really do see people wanting to, you know, there's kind of actually two sides of this. The people wanting to kind of take it slow and like really get to really get to get to know each other. But in general, because of the conversations that need to happen around it and because of that open communication, there is this, this rise in in intention dating where people just, um, you know, feel feel comfortable talking about it, but also want to know each other on a deeper level. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of the, and a lot of that richness in those communications, like, so, so we see it obviously with our, with our video products. I, I don't think that that's really going to go away. I think that, um, you know, people have gotten, people have kind of moved beyond the shallow swiping app in the sense that they want to know more about the person that they're going to risk seeing. Cause even in a post pandemic world, there still is, you know, risk to, to, to meeting in person. There, there always mm-hmm. is. Um, and so being able to, you know, maybe vet the person on video beforehand, um, you know, and kind of had that initial date, see if you, um, see if you have chemistry is just smart brush just from a you know physical safety standpoint, but as well as just to save you time. Um, I think that that's something that people probably realize too, is, you know, the time that, you know, the time that is wasted meeting bad dates can be greatly reduced by just having, you know, uh, more intention conversation uh, bef- before that meeting. I have one last question about the, I mean, look, we've gotten a ton of questions from the audience and I definitely want to go through this for the second part of today's panel, today's uh, webinar. Uh, But I do have one last question about the vaccine. And that is, you know, we're hearing about different variants. How safe is the vaccine against these variants that have come out? And do you believe that we might need booster shots? Um, Or how long does the, if I have, let's say the J&J vaccine right now, or Catherine has the Moderna vaccine, how long are we safe for? So the, in terms of the variants, um, there is a little bit of lower efficacy against the variants in some of the vaccines. I believe Pfizer and Moderna still have high efficacy rates. J&J, there was a lower efficacy in the variants. But despite that lower efficacy rate, it's still giving you that massive efficacy in terms of preventing severe COVID complications and death. So I would say even with the variants available, still get the vaccine. And there's likely a high, there's a high chance that we're going to need a COVID booster every year. I could very easily see this being somewhat of like, you get the flu vaccine every year, you get a variant COVID vaccine every year as well. Yeah, I just want to add, like, you know, the, the, the creation of variants is um, not unusual for the type of respiratory virus this is. We expect this, is, this virus has been mutating this entire time. Um, but I, what I, my mantra is a virus can't mutate if it can't replicate. And so if we can do everything in our power to stop replication of the virus within our community, decreasing community transmission, that's the only way we can stop more variants of concerns from popping up across the globe itself. And again, how do we do that? vaccination is really the, our, our best tool that we have now to decrease community transmission and not let the virus replicate so we can stop more variants from coming across. So getting more needles in arms is really the messaging that a lot of us are continuing to say, even in the face of these variants. Yeah, there's currently, we're sort of in this race against time, right, where you want to vaccinate as many people as you can to prevent these variants from spreading. And that includes, you know, the developing world, because what happens there will eventually come back here too. So it's not just about vaccinating our own population. It's literally about vaccinating everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have uh, so many questions from the audience I'd love to get through. So let's um, let's get, let's get started on that stuff. Um, someone asks, if an elderly parent whom I live with is vaccinated, and I am too, can I safely go out in public and date someone if they are also vaccinated? What if they aren't vaccinated? Can I still catch and transmit the virus either way? Okay, so so I, I would say yes, you can. Uh, so if, if someone, if, if you are in a household with other folks that are vaccinated, there's no reason why you need to continue wearing masks or social distancing if everyone under one roof is, is vaccinated. And the fully vaccinated definition by the CDC is two weeks from, you know, your last vaccine shot itself. 
in terms of dating other folks. Um, so if you're dating someone who is also vaccinated, your risk is as low as it can be. The lowest risk would be not to date, but that's not a reality, right? Um, so, you know, if you're dating someone who is vaccinated, you have taken everything in your power to reduce your risk as much as possible. If you're dating someone who is unvaccinated, I would first ask, why are they unvaccinated? Um, uh, first, to try to get an idea of, uh, you know, uh, uh, because really by, you know, the next few months, it's open season in the United States to get a vaccine. Anyone who wants a vaccine should be able to get one and there will be going beyond tears. If you are dating someone who is not vaccinated, I think um, like Dr. Afasi and Dr. Sharp are talking about, other measures like asking folks to get tested or whatnot is important. But it's important to note that these vaccines not only have efficacy against severe COVID and, and death from COVID, but also have shown to have real world efficacy in reducing transmission, including asymptomatic transmission of COVID-19. And so, you know, being vaccinated also protects, maybe not to the same degree of the mid 90% that we're seeing with, you know, severe, uh, with, you know, severe COVID, et cetera, but still is efficacious against asymptomatic COVID as well. So even by being vaccinated, you're still taking care of, you know, loved ones at home that you might be coming home to uh, after your date. So you should still wear masks. If you're like going out into, it's like I'm saying, like if you are out in a park and you're you know, in social setting and you're outside and has good ventilation uh, and you want to take off your mask, I think as long as you have two of those three, so if it's masks, ventilation and, and space, if, as long as you have two of those three, um, you can think about, you know, again, reducing one in terms of reducing a risk itself. Yeah, I would add to that, like the CDC has um, guidance up on, you know, if two people in the household are vaccinated, then you don't have to wear a mask and they, they have a sort of a rundown of scenarios. So you can just Google that. And if you have any questions about, you know, when is it appropriate um, to wear a mask or not, if I am vaccinated, because currently, you know, if you are fully vaccinated, they'll say still wear a mask. If you're like in public, like a grocery store kind of thing. I also think it's, you know, important to think about the actual risk itself. So what the vaccine does is it prevents you, the vaccinated person from becoming ill. Right. But it doesn't prevent an un, a non-vaccinated person from becoming ill. I'm sure, you know, as Dr. Hasra said, and, and the data is coming out, it reduces transmission. But there's always a potential that you can still be colonized with a virus, even though you don't have symptoms and transmit it. The, the, the risk of that is obviously lower if you've been vaccinated. But essentially, the goal is to prevent, pr protect the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. So if you are vaccinated and your partner is not, you know, you should worry about put yourself in the perspective of worrying about your partner's health because you you are OK. Um, right. So I think well, that helps. Disease, um, you know, I guess what I imagine is in my household right now, I'm the only adult not vaccinated. And I'm always asking my husband, like, go oh, clean out your nose the respiratory disease. I don't want, I want to make sure your nose hairs don't have it. And then I get it. Cause maybe you're protected. And so that's, I don't know. If I don't know that that's going to do anything. <laughs> I heard something on the New York times and just kind of stuck. So anyway, <laughs> I'm really glad to have uh, all three of you here to, to correct me. Um, okay. I have another question here. Um, I'm curious how this impacts dating. When will it be safer to kiss someone? I'm in the active dating process looking for a partner, which means lots of first dates, obviously not kissing anyone now, but would like to know when, when that will be not a completely stupid thing to do. So basically when will it be okay to just kiss every single person you meet on the first date? I think that's the question. Cause I think COVID-19 really killed the first date kiss and even the second date kiss. 
I think that's dependent on the person. Some people feel safe to kiss people right now on their first dates, and that could be okay based on the level of risk that they feel comfortable taking. Again, if you're kissing someone who's un, who's also vaccinated, you're thinking about, like Dr. Alfasi says, what is the risk in this scenario if, if both people are vaccinated, both people are protected against COVID-19? Obviously, there's other risks in kissing people. You know, there's other pathogens and diseases that can be transmitted through kissing and, and, and whatnot. And these things that crossed our mind pre-pandemic still live in post-pandemic world itself. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like, can I kiss people on my first date? Um, I, I think... There are scenarios where that's okay right now. And people shouldn't feel like this is a, like a moral decision of being good or bad. I mean, it's based on what level of risk you feel comfortable taking. If you are a vaccinated person and you're going on a date, a first date with another vaccinated person, and you want to kiss them. Your concern, my, my personal concern from COVID-19 from that sharing of saliva is much lower than it was if you were trying to kiss people on first dates at the you know, end of March, 2020. It also, a lot of it depends on, you know, the age group that you're in, right? Who you're, who you're living with. Are you living with older, vulnerable people? You know, so all of that needs to be factored in. If you are a young 20 something year old living in New York city and you meet another young 20 something year old living in New York city, you're living alone, you're not going to work and you guys want to go for it, you know, like you have to assess your own risk and see what's appropriate and then maybe mitigate risk in terms of I've been out on a date with other younger people. Maybe I should stay away from sort of an older, more vulnerable crowd. Can we, can you contract COVID by having oral sex, vaginal sex, or anal sex? This is a question. So SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that um, that causes COVID-19, has been found in vaginal secretions, semen, um, uh, saliva, um, as well as well as urine, but has not been shown to uh, be transmissible by those means alone itself. Um, uh, meaning vaginal secretions, semen, or urine, uh, or or feces, actually, by that matter. Um, it's really only seen to be. Uh, uh, properly transmitted through respiratory droplets, which also includes saliva in there. So while the virus has been found in these other sort of bodily fluids, it has not been shown to be reliably a way of, of transmission. So we don't consider uh, SARS-CoV-2 as a sexually transmitted infection. However, based on you know the intimacy folks have while having sex, it can definitely be transmitted during an intimate act or during sex itself. Yeah. Heavy breathing. Yeah. <laughs> Can COVID, this is such a great question. Can COVID interact with certain STDs and increase the risk of serious infection? Let's say someone is HIV positive. I know obviously the science has gone a far, you know, really, you know, it's not a death sentence anymore, but you know, the immune system is still very much compromised. Yeah, we have a good amount of data on uh, the effect of COVID-19 in folks living with HIV. Um, and so what we know is um, for, it's really dependent on their, like you mentioned, Maria, their immune system. So um, most folks who live with HIV um, often get sort of uh, recurrent labs done, one of which is looking at their CD4 count, which is a marker of their immune system. And what we've seen with multiple cohorts across the world actually is, is um, if a CD4 count below a certain number, usually around 350, is what's conferred with uh, more severe outcomes or worse health outcomes related to COVID-19. However, folks who have intact immune system, well-controlled, uh, living with HIV actually have no difference in health okay. outcomes when it comes to COVID-19 itself. That's excellent. That's great. Um, someone did someone, I, it seems like it's not a question, but there was a comment asking people to get tested for their star for their status is very common in the gay community because of HIV AIDS. I suspect now it will become common for everyone. So I guess they're kind of mentioning back to talking about STDs prior to actually having sexual intercourse. 
And I want to thank that person for that comment. Does anyone want to add anything to that comment? Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, true. I think it's totally going to happen. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. That's one of the things I think is one of the benefits of the post-pandemic world of being more communicating more about, you know, your health and what you expect of the health of your partners. Yesterday, somebody mentioned on one of my Instagram videos, I made a prediction about what it's going to be like in a post-vaccine world. And someone, OkCupid released a study where you receive 20% more matches if you say that you plan to get the vaccine. Catherine, has Meet Me done a similar study here, how much your users are saying? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think that uh, from from our data, one of the things that we see is, you know, if you're just, people are going to feel a lot more comfortable to date once, once they're vaccinated. Um, Cause there's a lot of worry in general about one, will they get it, but then also will they uh, share it with, with their families. And so in general, that the um, we've seen on, on, on our apps that we've surveyed that they feel less stressed and anxiety now that they are vaccinated. And, and then that's kind of going on with the, you know, and, and that now they're more likely to go on more dates because of that. Um, and, 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 and actually going on more dates as well. Cause of course you might want to go on more dates, but it doesn't necessarily translate to going on more dates as, you know, as you get comfortable, but in, the people who are vaccinated are going on more dates and, and, and are feeling more comfortable. Um, and, and a bigger, another big aspect of that is too, is the, the biggest, uh, I guess, jump in anxiety, according to our surveys anyways, when people's family members are vaccinated is when they're specifically feeling the, the larger drop in anxiety. That's something that we've seen um, across, across our apps and across all our member surveys is that, you know, people are, are concerned about, about themselves, um, but they're very concerned about their friends and family as well. And so as you have the vaccination, um, you know, worries go down and, and people of course want to find others that are vaccinated as well in the same way that earlier in the pandemic, you know, you only want to date other people that are taking the similar precautions as you. It's like mask wearing. Now the vaccine is available and as age groups become eligible, um, that's becoming the new, like, you know, the, the new thing that they, they the new six feet tall, Catherine, the, the <laughs> new six feet tall. Um, you know, well, someone commented on my, one of my posts yesterday and she said that this is to say, this is a form of, she called it form of vaccinism. So like we would say sexism, racism, whatever. And she then also asked, you know, would you not date someone if they didn't plan to vaccinate their children, uh, not to, to not give their children the flu vaccine. And it made me think about when I was single and I remember not purposefully, intentionally not dating people who, this is now my own opinion, right? Not my professional opinion, obviously I'm not a scientist, but I remember thinking like, if you, if we were to have children, you're not interested in the MMR vaccine for our children. I just don't think we share a lot of the same values for how we want to raise our children health-wise. And I just don't think we should date. And so, you know, does she have a point about vaccinism? I think she might. I think that there might be a, maybe a form of discrimination to people who fall into the group of, I'm not interested in receiving a vaccine. And in America, there is a massive, in the United States of America, there is a, there is a significant amount of population who's not, who's not interested in the vaccine. And so what say you to them about dating? So if I can jump in here, um, there are certain um, viruses that transmit very rapidly, right? Very easily transmittable. For example, measles has one of what's called a, a reproductive rate that's very high. And that's basically for every person who gets it, how many people are you going to transmit it to? The higher the reproductive rate, 
the more people, the, the higher proportion of the population needs to be vaccinated to protect everyone else. So as that reproductive rate goes up, you need a higher immunity, a higher threshold for herd immunity. Um, so in the U.S., with all these variants coming in that are more transmissible, that equates to more of the population needs to become vaccinated in order to protect everyone else. What percentage? So, I mean, that's to be determined right now, you know, it was initially like 70%. It went up to maybe 80% is what uh, Fauci has said, but it's not, um, it's sort of a moving target based on which variant is common at the time, uh, what's commonly spread and how transmissible is the particular variant that is the most common. But it needs to be high, you know, it needs to be close to this 80% mark, if not higher. So when you think about 30, 40% of the population saying that they're not interested in the vaccine, that creates a problem for all of us. And I, I think that it's, you know, a value-based issue that maybe you should think about when dating someone else, you know, are you guys on the same page with each other? Um, this vaccinating the whole population is sort of this like ethical and moral imperative for all of us to get out of this. So it's, uh, I think that this is my own personal opinion that we have to think of the greater good of society rather than our, you know, own very individual um, opinions that may or may not be based on data in terms of when we decide to get vaccinated, which ultimately I would highly recommend. I can't stress that enough. The United States being such an individualistic society, do you see in other, with other vaccines that have been accepted by the population, be it MMR, whooping cough, whatever, um, flu, is it, is it higher rate of vaccine, vaccinated population, let's just say MMR, vaccine population in countries where it's a more collectivist society, let's say Southern Europe? I, you know, to, to speak to this point a little bit more, I, I think that public health works best when you don't know that it's working, right? It's hard to stress, like, I need this vaccine when you don't see the horrors of smallpox or polio because we're all benefiting from herd immunity. Um, so I think that plays a role that um, you're sort of leaning on other people to do the work for you to get, you know, vaccinated so that you don't have to. And we do have this very individualistic society in the U.S. compared to different places, which I'm sure plays a major role. Yeah, I think in general, the whole anti-vaccination movement has really rapidly taken off, but it really has taken off a lot in Western countries. Um, France actually has a very high rate um, of refusals, unfortunately. Um, and I think we're seeing currently with the vaccination that a lot of people are, are declining to get this vaccine um, or the variety of them. But I think it's also important to make the distinction between anti-vax and vaccine hesitancy um, because, you know, some of these yeah, if you have a kid, you might be thinking about it. But I think a lot of people, this is the first time they're, they've actively thought about getting vaccinated themselves. And I think it's perfectly healthy to have questions. But it's a matter of, you know, are you willing to learn about, you know, how it works, about what, you know, you can, like, the, how, <laughs> how it, you know, 
the benefits of it to you. And I think it's, it's fine to be vaccine hesitant, but I think once you sort of block yourself off to listening, then I think that that really, you know, it's, it becomes an issue. Yeah, I think it's completely natural to have questions about this vaccine. It's natural to have questions about, you know, any medicine you take, anything you have. It's, it's important to, to, to think about it. Um, you know, in my experience, most of the folks that have been on the fence or undecided of the vaccine just had few simple questions. They just needed someone they trusted to answer for them. And once they got those answers, they were right in line to get the vaccine. I actually see a good amount of vaccine enthusiasm in the United States. I, I think, you know, it's important for us to, as public health officials, to think about the vaccines as a carrot, you know, to really think about this is a way that we can get some normalcy back in our lives. And, you know, if we can vaccinate a certain percentage of population, we can potentially do that. And, you know, until that happens, yeah, we'll have to continue masking and social distancing until our most vulnerable are, ma- are vaccinated. Uh, but like what, so, and, and for this entire rollout, I've, I've really been a proponent of a bottom-up approach. It really has to be leveraging sort of community organizations and, and trusted members of the community to mm-hmm. then actually preach the benefits of the vaccine, answer questions of the vaccine to folks that really may be on the fence. Um, like who? Yeah. Can you give me uh, examples in the community? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, in Chicago, we are vaccinating church congregations, bringing them to sun, on, on Sunday and making sure pastors are talking about it to really, you know, combat, you know, um, types of other inequities we're seeing in large cities of who's getting a vaccine and who's not, who's trusting medicine or who has a historical, you know, and, uh, and uh, uh, a reason to be mistrustful of uh, of medicine and who's not. And so it's really trying to leverage, again, these sort of organizations that work within communities that communities already trust and getting the information to them. Because most of the time, people just want the information. And once they're given that information and given that, then they feel empowered to take the vaccine. And, that, and I think that's the best way to, to at least um, roll it out. I, for one, I'm just so obsessed with people taking photos of themselves being vaccinated because I feel like that's a guerrilla marketing approach to public health. And yeah. we should we should post that stuff when we get our flu vaccines every year. It's like yeah. the uh, I voted sticker. Yeah. yeah, social signal. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah I, I love like that. The FOMO. Yeah. I have so much FOMO right now. Oh my god, vaccinate me, please. Okay, one last question. We did talk about this, but this is from the audience. Um, what are your thoughts on the coronavirus virus? How will this affect dating and those vaccinated? I know we touched upon this a little bit, but maybe you'd like to add a little bit more to that particular answer. So I think the, the current variant that will likely become the dominant variant in the United States, and it's already become the dominant variant in parts of uh, both Florida and, and Texas, is the B117, which was uh, formerly known as the UK variant. It's important to note that you know um, both uh, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are shown to be highly efficacious against that, and still 100% effective against severe hospitalization and death. The Johnson and Johnson was slightly less efficacious, I think, in the order of 86% against the B117 variant, but still 100% effective uh, in terms of hospitalization and death itself. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think uh, as far as I, I still have very good faith in the vaccines available here uh, against these variants that we have seen right now. That does not mean a future variant or a future variant of concern can't potentially escape these vaccines, which is again why it's so important. Like Dr. Alfasi mentioned, it's a race against time, trying to get as many vaccinations as possible, trying to drive down transmission, community transmission rates as low as possible to make sure future variants that potentially could escape the vaccine don't become a reality. But I, I don't think that the presence of variants alone is going to actually change any kind of guidance or recommendations towards dating that we would have otherwise if the variants were not um, circulating. Yeah, and we do have, you know, more testing and more travel restrictions and such going on now. Um, So 
you know, I'm based in Ireland and, you know, the UK variant got here quite quickly and that really contributed to a quite a long, dark winter. Um, but, you know, in terms of the variants from Brazil and South Africa, they, you know, they really implemented more um, protocols in terms of quarantine and in tracking and, and um, genomic mapping. And, you know, they are monitoring the emergence of new variants. And I think that, you know, if, if there are new variants of concern, then we are much more able to deal with them now than we were before. So that's good. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Hazra, Dr. Alfasi, and Dr. Sharp for their guidance today. I feel like many questions that I had personally were answered. I hope for the audience, their questions were answered as well. One last question to Catherine, uh, who helped organize this webinar today. You know, you mentioned before about how video dating was up this past year, mm -hmm. naturally, because we're all home. What do you think those rates will be in a post-vaccine world? So I, th I think that the, uh, you know, I think video dating is really here to stay because it's very much a, uh, such a richer experience of getting to know someone. I think, you know, basically, you know, we saw, you know, probably, you know, really brought the future forward in terms of, you know, video adoption, three years, probably worth of video adoption happening in a matter of months. And now a year later, a lot of people are now very used to, um, very used to video dating and very used to, um, to, to meeting that way. And I think that, you know, that that's going to, it's going to say, cause people have learned about the, um, you know, just the richer engagement that they have, as well as, you know, as, as I was talking about before, the stronger, um, the stronger sense of who the person is. And if you have that chemistry and people value their time a lot. Um, so if you can have a good, if, if you can have a good, um, you know, date via video before meeting in person, and then, you know, know that, you know, you're going to be meeting someone that you're, you know, very much more interested in meeting them than you could get from just, you know, text conversations. And so, you know, that form of, you know, really rich and meaningful dating, I think is, is going to um, be around the stay in the same way that, you know, I think a lot of us have gotten used to grocery delivery and, uh, and, and a bunch of other things like that. I, um, I think dating via, um, you know, video dating is also one of those things where, you know, post pandemic, it's, it's, it's going, it's, it's going to be around and going to be um, something that um, people will continue to do. You know, I'm going to agree with you from a professional perspective, because I'll never forget last year, you know, we set up in the last 12 months, we have set up 300 zoom dates and it's actually not the last 12 months. None of my clients wanted to do zooms in March, April, May. And then suddenly in June, it was like, okay, I'll do the zoom dates. So from June until January, we had set up 300 zoom dates, 200 of those went in in-person dates, walk at the central park, walk by the pier, whatever. And it was just interesting to see how they adopt, how many of those people adopted it. And even now where I have, I have clients who have been vaccinated and their matches are vaccinated and they're still saying, no, 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 Maria zoom date first. Let me see if the vibe checks before we meet in person. And that, you know, I'm, I'm with you on that, Catherine. I think, I think some things are here to stay. And that is the video date prior to the date. Yeah. Does it pass the vibe check? Right. Do you, do you have chemistry? Yeah. yeah. If you, I mean, as much chemistry as you can figure out on, on video, because, you know, so much of chemistry is also, you know, your physical interactions, smell, body language, all that stuff. It's really hard to judge a two dimensional, but it's at least if you pass the vibe check, it'll take you there. I, again, want to thank all of our panelists, Dr. Hazra, Dr. Alfasi, Dr. Sharp, as well as Meet Group's co-founder, 
Catherine Connolly for joining us today to talk Dare to Date, the COVID vaccine and dating safety. Thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you have a dating or relationship question, you can visit askamatchmaker.com to submit your 60 second audio question. You can also follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria for more dating and relationship tips. Until then, be lovable and more importantly, be likable. And of course, be safe. See you next week.